Hey everybody, welcome back. Happy Wednesday as we continue the week and as we continue through the book of Exodus. Um, uh, significant milestone today as we hit chapter 20. Uh, the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus, one of the two places in the scripture that we find the Ten Commandments. Um, most of the chapter is taken up with them. We may or may not get them through them today. We'll see how that goes. But remember the context. Uh, Moses has been given instructions by God, has followed those instructions to consecrate the people, uh, which means to set them apart, to make them holy. The people have reestablished or recommitted themselves to the idea of this covenant. We've had an expression of God's holiness. There was smoke and fire at Mount Sinai as God conversed with Moses and begins to give instructions. And now we see the next step in that as God delivers what are really that I think taken to be the essence of the covenant. And I suppose, Michael, maybe it's a good place for a word before we read them. It's easy to read the Ten Commandments, especially I think as modern day Christians and see rules and the idea that God is giving the people rules. I don't think that I don't think that's enough. I don't think that takes it far enough. I, I think a better way to understand this is that God is showing people what it looks like to live in this covenant, that, that if God's going to deliver them, if they're going to be God's people, that God is setting out for them a path of the way he expects and invites them to live. And I, I think if we just see these as do's and don'ts, we really underestimate not only the Ten Commandments themselves, but certainly the way they function in this story. If you are a parent or you've been around parents and you've ever heard those words, we don't do that in our family, or that's not how we do it. That's, I think, a better understanding of the Ten Commandments than a list of judgments that the legal system is called to interpret and impose judgment on others. It's been made clear in Exodus already. And in some ways, Clint, in an interesting way, it was really complexified in Genesis because if you think of the people in Genesis, there's some rough characters in there, right? And yet these are the people of the covenant. Here, I think what is striking to me is the fact that when God gives these commandments, he does so in the context of the people having just been complaining, the people just moments ago not demonstrating faith in the midst of adversity, there's really no confusion in this story. When God gives the Ten Commandments, it's not done with the idea that the people will be able to follow them perfectly. It is rather the identifying marker of what it means to be inside the relationship with God, or you use that word, Clint, covenant. The covenant here is the a relationship that has begun by God's invitation and which God has been faithful to, and the people, through various moments in their life, either more closely or less closely, adhere perfectly to, but God perfectly invites and God perfectly sustains. And that's where we find ourselves today. At the beginning of the Ten Commandments, the people are given what they consider to be gift, grace, opportunity, identification, meaning. What they are given here is a blessing. And I do think that we 
in our modern context, tend to read this as a list of thou shalt nots, which then gets imposed into a whole bunch of other sort of cultural arguments. So that's not what's happening here. And whether or not we should do that in our culture, that's a conversation outside of today. Well, when we come to Exodus, we should try to hear it for what it is, and that is a gracious God inviting the people to live with the kind of patterns and identity that one would have if they're going to be in covenant with God. And these Ten Commandments kick off several chapters of law. There's going to be um, a, a variety of laws that God is going to give the people about all various aspects of their life. But these ten have always been in the faith a kind of central expression. It's not necessarily that they are more important. It's not necessarily that... You know, if you break the other ones, that's not as bad as breaking the Ten Commandments. It, it, it just they f- have functioned for the people of faith as a, as a kind of essence, a, a core of what it means to follow God. And and the first thing I want us to notice about them is that the idea of law is rooted in what God has done first. So let let's go ahead and read a couple verses here. Then God spoke these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It's important that the first commandment has a a preface, and the preface links the obedience of the people with what God has done. And it is always our task to let our lives be a response to what God has done for us. We, we don't keep the commandments to live up to and earn God's action on our behalf. God has already acted on our behalf, and the commandments are a way that we show our gratitude by living the life God has called us to. So this is important. I am the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt. It is vital for the people of Israel that their call to be obedient is rooted in the actions of God already accomplished on their behalf. And we miss that. Sometimes we memorize the Ten Commandments and we learn, you shall have no other gods before me, which which is true, but it's it's incomplete. And I think coupling this with God's actions in Egypt um, helps us see something right away in the very first sentence of the commandments, Michael. There's a temptation, Clint, to think of other gods as being idols. I think we make this mistake when we, in our imaginations, imagine like a golden calf, and we think, well, I don't have a golden calf on my mantle, so I'm good. We miss what is, I think, a much deeper teaching here. God says, I'm the one that delivered, per your point, Clint, and then this idea that you won't have other gods before me has in mind you won't have any other source or font of life, of sustenance, of care than me. If if God's the one who brings the people out of Egypt, then God is the one who the people should trust, that they should put all of their reliance and hope in the in the deliverer to be the one to constantly supply, sustain, and provide for their every need. And that, if we're willing to hear a much more expanded definition of that, Clint, we take away this idea, well, I don't worship this thing or I don't pray to this thing. If, if we can get that out of our mind, 
then we can suddenly begin to find all of the things that are clamoring for our attention, all of the opportunities in our culture to put money as the first and most important thing, or status, or health, or the advancement of our children. Whatever that is for you, there is really, as unique as every person in, in the world is, there's a unique set of temptations for what might call our attention off of God and on to some external third thing. And this commandment roots the people's identity in God's action on their behalf, and it demands that they hold to account their motivations. Why is it I'm doing this? It uh, demands that they ask themselves, uh, who do I trust? And as it relates to the first commandment, Clint, there's only one you can trust, and that's the deliverer. That's the God who brought you out. Yeah, and it, it probably, I should have said it in the um, intro remarks, Michael, it matters that the Ten Commandments come at a time of transition. You know, the people, at least in the expectation of the story at this point, are about to go into the promised land. They're moving toward the promised land with the idea that they're going to be established as a people. And it's in that transition that God says, you know, you, you're not to worship other gods. You're not to put anything before me. And we're going to see, as we know the rest of the story, that people are going to constantly struggle with chasing the religious ideas of the people around them. And here, God gives them on the front end this very clear commandment. You and I are in covenant relationship. And nothing else and no, no one else or nothing else comes ahead of me. I am to be central. And then we see the extension of that in the next commandment, number two. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above that is on the earth beneath or the water under the earth. You will not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing children for the iniquity of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Um, the commandment itself here, relatively simple. You shall not confuse anything created with creator. You shall keep the distinction. You shall keep the boundaries of God and not God, of sacred and not sacred, of holy and not holy. You shall not bow to anything else um, in heaven, earth, water. Uh, you know, you couldn't say that more clearly. It, it is um, to be complete here. It covers everything. You will not bow down or worship them. And I, I think if we stop there for a, a moment, Michael, we just see that uh, a very clear call. Again, the Israelites are going to struggle with this. They're going to struggle with this before we even get out of this book. And yet, um, we have to be careful before we judge them too harshly because this is one of the fundamental struggles of the human heart is wanting to take a thing and give it our allegiance, give it our respect, give it our admiration. And in doing so, we often elevate it to a position where it takes too much power and uh, receives too much allegiance from us and, in, in essence, replaces God. And God here, in another way, is telling the people nothing else gets to be in the top spot. I don't know that this resonates as clearly with us as it 
probably would have to its first hearers because <laughs> this language, Clint, of nothing that is any form of anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the water or the earth, this is really systematically categorizing and knocking off all of the things that the Israelites have seen worshipped in other places. When they were in Egyptian captivity, they saw the gods of the earth, the gods of the underworld, the gods of the heavens. The sun, cats. Yeah, all of this has at some point before them been worshipped. And here, the commandment is clear. None of that stuff that you've seen beforehand is going to be acceptable. You weren't rescued by those things. God, this connects to that first commandment. God didn't rescue you from Egypt for you to carry Egypt's gods with you. That if their gods had been enough, then they would have been the ones that prevailed. But no, in this story, we're reminded that once again, the people are invited to relationship with God. But that's an exclusive relationship. God is not interested in sharing the God status with the stuff that God created. God wants these people to have a direct, living, real, meaningful relationship with himself. And so that is the grace that comes on the front of this end of this commandment. That's good news that God wants to have this ex- exclusive relationship. I do think, Clint, it very quickly turns very troubling to us when we hear the extent to which God sure. demands that exclusivity. Yeah, when God says here, I'm, I'm a jealous God, and the idea that your actions in the present matter in the future, that uh, you know, you could read this to say God holds a grudge. Maybe a better way to read it is that God so seriously takes obedience that a, a lack of it threatens the future. It threatens our future generations. It threatens the generations of Israel if they displease God. And in the text, I really think that is supposed to be offset by this idea, yes, it it may bring bad to you for three or four generations, but it will bring good to you for a thousand generations for those who love me and keep my commandments. I, I think because we're troubled by the first part of that, Michael, we often miss the power of the second part, but, um, you know, there is a seriousness here. One of the things the Ten Commandments present for us is there are consequences when we fail. There, There is a danger in not taking our obedience seriously. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. And I want to just make sure that we're all on the same page of the ordering here, because I think it matters in verse 6. Uh, showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who, and this is key, love me and keep my commandments. That is really important wording. Not love my commandments, not love doing the right thing, not love pointing out when another person gets it wrong. Yeah, not even keep my commandments first and then love. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, exactly right. I think we need to note the ordering and the focus, love me and keep my commandments. That is, I think, a beautiful summary of the intention that came before. Yes, it is absolutely troubling, this idea that the children and their children and their children bear some of the weight of responsibility of those who are not faithful to the commands, to those who seek out iniquity, for those who bring upon themselves the stain of sin. Yes, that's a troubling thought. But to your point, Clint, not only are we reminded that God will be steadfast to the thousandth generation of the one who 
seeks to be uh, in the midst of the covenant with God, but that the spirit of that is loving God and keeping the commandments, keeping the the, the family order and following through with what God has called the people to do and, and who to be. And thus far, one and two has all been about the people's understanding of who God is and the relationship of fidelity and faithfulness to that God. What God's asking is, remember who brought you out, right? And then have a loving, meaningful relationship with me and and keep the commandments I give you. And notice that that's not in any way established in a judgmental frame. It's not to say because God wants to judge everybody who gets it wrong. No, it's because that is what entrance into the family looks like. That is what a adoptive kind of new identity will be defined as. It'll be looking like these commandments being kept by God's people. Yeah, and there is, I, I want to be very careful with this. You know, Michael, you and I just did a, a walkthrough of the Ten Commandments with our Westminster Catechism series, and I think Westminster handles the catechisms really well. If you've not um, interacted with that, it may be worth it if if you're interested. Having said that, I, I want to be very careful with this, but there is a kind of hierarchy to these commandments. And, and I don't mean that number one is more important than number five. What I, what I mean is, in, in terms of their, the danger they pose, there, there is a kind of ordering to these. And so what is the most dangerous thing to the community of Israel that they put another God first? What, what does that look like? That they would bow down to an idol. So, um, in stating these commandments first and second, I think there is a clear message here of be particularly attentive to the things that are most dangerous to our faith. And, and that is, in this case, putting something in the role of God and giving something other than God our allegiance or our worship. Those are perhaps the two most dangerous realities that the people of Israel will have to navigate. And they won't always do it well, but they are here on the front end as a, as a warning sign of the places they're most quickly to go uh, out of bounds, I think. It's often the case with the Ten Commandments, I think, to help flesh them out, to help us understand the spirit of them instead of viewing them as very rote very calcified, judgmental words. I think it can be helpful to read this as a kind of conversation between parent and child. And if you've ever had that relationship, you know how rarely children understand the extent to which their parent has gone to bend the rule for them in whatever circumstance. There's very few parents. I'm not saying that they're not out there, but most parents, when they're having a situation with their kid, they bend as much as they possibly can because everybody wants their kid to be happy and to have a have what they want. But they also want their kid to be safe. They want their kid to know what it means to be a, a person of character. And they want to help them along so that they don't make the same mistakes that that parent may have made in their life. I think if you read this this way, then you can begin to see how God doesn't want the people to put their hope in something that's not going to pan out. God doesn't want them to waste their time uh, praying and giving allegiance to gods who will do nothing for their 
for them that will bring no good in their life or for people to put themselves at the center of the equation instead of God. There are so many temptations in the midst of our lives that these commandments, these first two, solidifying the relationship between God and the people as exclusive is actually a great gift. It's actually, I think, a parent seeking to remind the child, no one else has your best interest in mind but me. So, Let's be serious about being faithful to one get with to one another. And I promise that on the backside of that, you're going to be blessed. On the backside of that, you're going to be glad you did. On the backside of that, you're going to see what maybe you can't see now, that it was the better way for you. Right. And I, I think in light of that parental image, Michael, I, most of us who have done that know that the quickest way to get upset with our children and, and the quickest way to come down harsh on rules are the places where our kids are most in danger of being hurt, when they run out into the road, when they disappear when you're trying to watch them. I mean, those are the things that inspire a kind of panic in parents. And it's at that point that we stress how important it is that children obey those things because there's real stakes involved. And I think that's the tenor of these opening two commandments. We're only two in, Clint, yeah. and yet we have already walked some very hollowed ground. So hope that you've been encouraged and challenged. We hope that you might comment if there's been something new in this or if you have a question that might come up. And uh, we look forward as we continue on with the next commandments as we continue our study tomorrow. Thanks, everybody. 